you are tuned in to the State of Cannabis News Hour, where industry leaders, regulators, and lovers of cannabis gather collectively to move policy forward in an inclusive and sustainable way. Professionals and Canacurious alike can tune in to hear leading cannabis experts share and discuss headlines, critical industry issues, social topics, and more. The State of Cannabis News Hour, your daily dose. Hi, and welcome to the State of Cannabis News Hour, where we bring you all the top stories you need to know and talk about them for four minutes and 20 seconds. We are a group of experts in different cannabis spaces with a wide diversity of perspectives and life experiences. Our news is bite-sized and infused with a nice mix of facts, opinions, and a pinch of humor. It's Thursday, February 17th, 2022. This is episode number 218. I'm Susan Sores, the founder of the State of Cannabis News Hour, author of the children's book, What's Growing in Grandma's Garden, and Cannabis' Favorite Grandma, aka Nanogram. If you're listening to the podcast or watching on the YouTube channel, the show is live every weekday at 9 a.m. Pacific Standard Time on Clubhouse. Spark it up with us and over 26,000 State of Cannabis News Hour members if you want to be an audience participant. This is one of the unique things about this show. Not only do we have a panel of expert correspondents, often we have someone in our audience that is intimately involved in the story. Otherwise, please subscribe to support our show. We'd love to hear from you, so please leave us a review. Today we're talking about the media's war on cannabis, a vague and confusing law in Colorado, Virginia starting recreational sales, secret sauce in a Vegas restaurant, a 420 tax holiday in DC, free THCV seeds, an update on San Jose, San Francisco gives the green light to consumption lounges to spark up again, and many other frosty nuggets. So stay tuned for the full 60 minutes of the State of Cannabis News Hour. The following program contains coarse language and nudity. Viewer discretion is advised. Audience, feel free to raise your hands if you want to weigh in on a headline after it's been read, and we'll try to bring you up to the stage. Keep it brief and relevant, or you might get the gong. Kicking off the show today is Nicole West. She is a cannabis business specialist, part-time firefighter and cat herder, and director of operations at LB Atlantis. Nicole is a veteran in the cannabis industry and is always ready to use her experience to guide others. That experience includes taking a felony for a vague and confusing law in Colorado. During her brief incarceration, she earned the nickname Jail Google from fellow inmates. What's your headline today, Nicole? Well, my headline today comes in from Colorado about another vague and confusing fucking law, which I'd like to call, Go Home, Colorado, You're Drunk. Headline comes out of Westward, and it is, Dual-Use Dispensary is Technically Not Compliant for the Past Two Years. Well, a legislative mistake has made dispensaries selling both medical and recreational marijuana non-compliant in the law for the past two years, according to the Colorado Marijuana Enforcement Division, or the MED. Selling medical marijuana and recreational marijuana require two separate state licenses in Colorado, which approximately 575 dispensaries currently permitted for both by the MED. And all of them are technically 
technically a foul under the state's rule. They're out of compliance because of legislative, o- legislative oversight and not because of their business practices, State Representative Eddie Hooten and told the House Committee on February 16th. A 2019 law that resulted from an extensive sunset review of state marijuana industry regulation merged medical and recreational pot codes, but the bill drafters accidentally left out the paragraph for dual-use dispensaries or co-locations, according to the state representative, Matt Gray. It was never the intent uh, to sever the right to co-locate whatsoever, he said during the committee hearing. Licensees for both medical and recreational sales at the same address remain active, and because of the issue from legislative error, the MED has taken no action against any dual-use dispensaries for this technical non-compliance. But the department doesn't have the authority to fix it. Either lawmakers have to enact new legislation for the paragraph in order for it to be added back into the state's marijuana code, or Hooten and Representatives Kevin Van Winkle introduced the House Bill 1037 earlier this year to restore the language, allowing a dual-use dispensary. The measure would keep previous rules requiring separate points of sale for medical and recreational products and continuing to uh, giving local jurisdiction final authority over marijuana dispensary licenses. Hooten and Van Winkle's first bill reading was approved by the House Trans. Transportation and Local Government Committee 11 to 2, and it will now move on to the full house. I wonder who those two motherfuckers that voted against this were. The state's Department of Revenue, which is responsible for overseeing the MED's first approach hooting in 2019 about fixing this error, but lawmakers pushed the issue into 2020 then into 2021. And now, as we feel that this is 2020 repeat or 2022, we're addressing it as the COVID pandemic uh, is lightening up. The Med anticipates that significant businesses, business disruptions across the state if lawmakers don't fix this error eventually, including potential surrender of licenses as well as forced updates of marijuana industry regulations for local governments, according to the MED Policy and Regulatory Affairs Director. This offers technical correction that we believe will inadvertently, were inadvertently omitted during the sunset review process inadvertently or was this intentional omission who knows uh so this is super interesting for me to watch as it goes down i think it's very interesting because colorado during my uh grand jury investigation was very clear to say that because we were operating outside of one code within the regulation that we were under complete federal potential um uh turning over to the federal government because we were no longer within the codes of the regulation. So I think it's pretty interesting that these 575 dispensaries were put into a complete, complete illegal situation due to the government not being able to properly write their laws. And the best part is that it got passed and that nobody noticed for almost six months. I'm super curious as to who actually brought it forward, but I'm also more curious to hear what everyone else on the uh, stage has to say. I'm Nicole West reporting for the State of Cannabis News. I think we're going to find out really quick that the majority of these laws that have been passed early on in cannabis legalization are not compliant. And it's, it's, it's very, it's, it's pretty much impossible to stay in, in compliance uh, if you're an early operator, uh, period. It's just proof that nobody actually fucking reads the laws. At all. They just want the money. Nicole, how did it make you feel when you saw this oh, article? Oh man, I was fucking furious because the, the reality that this law was passed as I was in jail, this is, it was actually passed while I was incarcerated and literally turning everybody in the fucking whole state, these large operators, these companies now that are allowed to accept publicly traded money because that same law, the law changed that same year, allowing for public companies to come into the Colorado market. Um, now we have public companies that are outside of the fucking guise of the Colorado regulations and the state of Colorado did this and it just shows how fucking messy they are. And it makes me really, really sad to, to have 
had to go through what we went through, but it makes me sad for people in Colorado more than anything. Well, you're a bigger person than me. I'd I'd want to sue those motherfuckers. I mean, so ridiculous. It's one of the beauties Come of a on. plea deal. Unfortunately, it protects them completely against uh, there ever being an ability to sue for the the situation. So, taking a plea deal, I also waived my rights to being able to see the full discovery. I was only I only saw like a quarter of it. So, um, yeah. Oh, that I forgot that you took a plea. Okay. Well, <laughs> Jesus. Thank you so much, Nicole. Um, up next is Rico Lamite. He likes to ask the tough questions that the mainstream media refuses to ask. The self-proclaimed dopest dad alive is here to encourage other dope dads and is the patriarch of dad jokes. Find him on TEDx or at one of his Cannavision events, but always find him here every weekday as co-producer of the State of Cannabis News Hour. What's your headline today, Rico? All right, so mine's coming out of MJ moment. Virginia Senate votes to start adult use marijuana sales this September through current medical dispensaries. Elections have consequences, everybody. Uh, the Virginia State Senate, uh, v- they voted to speed up the timeline for retail cannabis sales Tuesday evening, approving a plan to allow existing medical dispensaries to open sales to the general public beginning September 15th. The 400-page legislation was given just hours for review before voting on it, so you know there wasn't anything in there that they'll regret later. Per the article, it's being framed as a bid to give Virginia farmers a piece of an expected lucrative adult-use market, opening early sales to a handful of large industrial hemp processors. (laughs) Very inclusive. Uh, If passed into law, it'll give a 16-month head start for compliant operators on the 2024 official retail launch. Um, um, legislation signed into law by former Democratic Governor Ralph Northam. Through, uh, though the Senate's 23-16 vote was a victory for bipartisanship, the GOP-dominated House of Delegates has yet to vote on the measure and have refused to docket any cannabis bills to date, remaining divided on how to proceed. The legislation faces criticism from advocates accusing Democratic lawmakers of abandoning, la- abandoning last year's racial justice commitments, which laid the foundation for Virginia's original legalization push. Northam's administration planned to delay uh, retail until 2024 to give the state ample time to iron out regulatory kinks and develop social equity programming to help black Virginians compete. But this summer, lawmakers got together and they formed a work group to study the issue and concluded legalizing possession, uh, but not sales, emboldened the illicit market, giving no choice but to provide legal avenues. Also, they say, that the fees uh, the state plans to charge companies entering the market early, $6 million for pharmaceutical processors and 500000 for hemp processors, would provide funding for loan programs built to seed new social equity operators. Trickle-down ep- economics, y'all. Brilliant. The new legislation requires early licensees to be incubators for at least five qualified social equity licensees, uh, but advocates say that they're unconvinced, arguing similar programs have been unsuccessful in other states following similar paths. And you know, my good friend uh, from Supernova Women, Amber Center, said just this morning, uh, the narrative that equity programs aren't going well needs to stop. It's legalization that isn't going well. And I agree. I got friends back in VA locked up or have been locked up for the lightest of charges, some serving time for a car allegedly smelling like cannabis. So I'm torn on this one. I really want my home state to benefit from legalization. And uh, while the former governor's plan opening retail in 2024 seems stupid on the front end, it did give folks a chance to educate themselves about the plant science, history, economics, build businesses and business relationships prior to broad legalization. Opening out retail early will 
further divide the haves and have-nots. It'll speed up distribution of misinformation, and more corporate predators will blitz the state. But overall, Virginia will make more money than ever before. And I just hope that my fellow Virginians see this for what it is, acknowledging the economic opportunity for having Republicans currently running the show. Uh, raise as much money as possible to privately privately fund and implement programming that they deem necessary to assist BIPOC applicants and operators if you truly believe in those things um, that you guys said pre-Yunkin. And uh, just know that social equity, enforcement reform, and community assistance is no longer coming from the state. To the rest of the country, consider what's happening in Virginia right now as a preview to the greater United States legalizing under Republican leadership and prepare accordingly. This is Rico Lamit, the dopest dad on the street from VA to CA for the State of Cannabis News Hour. Love to hear y'all's thoughts on this one. Rico, can you explain why uh, Amber said that uh, we should say that legalization isn't going well instead of equity programs aren't going well? I'm not sure I quite understand that. All right, so uh, the programs that have been proposed... Um, it's not the problem isn't, isn't the proposals um, in the programs. The problem is legalization is very complicated um, with a lot of deep pocketed money interests. And it's not going to go the way that you want it to go. It's not going to go uh, the way you propose for it to go. And um, you just find out that a lot of people that seem to be your friend, they seem to have your best interests at heart in the beginning, mostly politicians. They don't, period. They offer you a dollar and they end up giving you 10 cents. It's the way it goes. All right. Well, I think we are at time on that headline. So unless anybody else wants to weigh in, we'll go ahead and hop to our next correspondent. we got a stacked day today. Uh, Liz Rogan, biodynamic biologist, botanist, and cannabis health liaison, as well as our pinup girl. Liz, what do you have for us today? Good morning, Nick. Good morning, everyone. Thank you, Nicole. Today, my story comes from a KTNV, Las Vegas. The headline reads, Health Department Knew About Possible contamination, um, Cannabis Contamination at Secret of Siam. On February 10th, an, inspect, an inspection uh, triggered by a complaint of possible cannabis and food uh, led health inspectors to Secret of Siam. Inspectors went to the restaurant but did not see any uh, actual THC spices, as they've said in this article. Um, so unfortunately, people reported that they had showed up at the hospital with heart palpitations and feeling ill. All of it reported hospital, but there was no THC on site. The only thing they could find was an unlabeled container of uh, cornstarch. That was the only violation. So currently, um, they are still looking into this. The health department does not have the ability to test for THC with their equipment, but when they can, they will come back. And so currently, Secret of Siam is closed, and um, that is all on the secret ingredient at Secret of Siam. If anyone has eaten there, I'd love to hear what you have to say. Uh, this is Liz Rogan for the State of Cannabis News Hour. They couldn't uh, identify any cannabis because they the health department can't test for THC, right? That's correct. They looked around, they looked and said they didn't see any spices that looked out of place or anything like that. The only thing you could find was a, a cornstarch that was unlabeled. So that was the only um, violation they, they had. So it was just basically hearsay. They couldn't prove it, but that they was, hid all the weed in the cilantro. They don't use cilantro and you don't remember, you don't they, remember the other story, the lady that, that like got kicked out oh. of her church group for fucking for weed, but it was only That's cilantro. Right. Oh, that was so funny. Yeah. But that was for her menu though. This is for this is pho, bro. This is a very different soup, okay? I think they it use all has cilantro. cilantro. They do. 
Siam definitely had a secret. Yeah, I think that maybe, you know, it wasn't quite in the spices. They could have looked other places. People could have taught them about infusion and oils and other things. But regardless, they couldn't find the secret. So let us know if you enjoy their food. I love cannabis chili oil. So that's a great addition to a pho bowl if you did want to infuse your pho. I wonder they how. They must have uh, been using some rapid onset if people were feeling this that strong in 30 minutes. What the fuck? I wonder how um, THC um, does, you know, uh, with the chemical reaction with MSG. And w- w- is the uh, Nevada Bureau going to send in some secret diners? Or, I mean, how do they even get alerted to this? They're alerted to it because of complaints um, that at the hospital and the emergency department. So that triggered the health department. And, and the patients infection. thought the patients thought they were high. One woman specifically it's all because of Karen. Yeah, one woman specifically had a lot of heart <laughs> issues, and she was like, "I was feeling so weird," and and she basically asked her doctor to then test her for THC, and he said, "Yeah, you do have THC in her." Yeah, she just smoked some shit before she walked into the fucking emergency room. But it's like, where else might she have eaten or what other things could she have ingested? You know, it's the secret. Let's do a road trip to Vegas. How many people complained about this? Just Karen. Does it say how many? Like, or is it just this one person? It was one person who went to the hospital, and um, that's all that they've reported. The restaurant has always had an A grade, and they've only been open since 2019. So they've been, been inspected four times. Sounds like a gift with purchase to me, man. I'm, yeah, I'd totally. Be happy about it. <laughs> <laughs> Nicole Buffong, did you come up because you're, you're in the area? Did you want to comment? We, we're, I think we're at about time. Now, I am in Las Vegas. Thank you for having me up. I, I think this is sad because the restaurant is closed now for um, no re- no fault of their own. And it's a family-owned business. And I, I just think that this is sad that this woman um, complained and, and de- cannot track where the THC came from in her system. Um, and, and so I think it's just sad. It's crazy that it's just one person, that that's all it takes. Like that's That seems a little bit ludicrous that we could shut down a business by just being like, I think that they did this, you know? Yeah. Agreed. Anyone investigate if this person owns a competing uh, restaurant? Oh, that's a good point, Brandon. Or let's go, Brandon. Or if she's just someone who is against cannabis, period. Like she could easily be a person that is out here trying to stop consumption lounges from becoming legal, which is you know not out of her control at this point. And I'm sorry, I thought it was the secret of Saigon. It's Siam, so yeah, it, it was not even. It was not fun. That was that's my bad. All right, well, let's keep smoking the news. Let's. Repping West Hollywood hard, he is the industry's longest continuously running retailer and known in Detroit as White Gucci. If you ain't at Green Street getting deals done, you can probably find him with a mink coat and on a private jet somewhere high above the clouds, staying hydrated, sipping on desalinated liberal tears with both pinkies up. Up next is the man himself, Kaiser Brose. Jason Beck, what you got for oh, us today? Oh, yeah. Good morning. Good morning, Rico. Hope everyone's having a fantastic Thursday. I'll tell you what, this story is a little bit discouraging. SB 1074 was introduced yesterday by California Senate Majority Leader McGuire, an act to amend sections 34011 and 34012 of the Revenue and Taxation Code. 
This bill is being marketed as tax relief for the industry by claiming they are eliminating the cultivation tax. I think this sounds great and face value, but things are going to get really swampy as we learn more about this bill. As some direct uh, direct messaging from this bill and the cultivation June 30th, 2022, and instead roll the separate weight-based regressive tax into the existing percentage-based excise tax that would be delayed. Require the Department of Finance to determine what a single excise tax rate would be in order to collect no more the existing tax framework with the cultivation tax and excise tax separately. Provide relief for the California cannabis industry by fully pausing the rollover of, of the cultivation tax into the excise tax until July 1st of 2025. And then on July 1st, 2025, there will be a 50% implementation of the swap into a single excise tax. And on July 1st, 2026, it will be a full implementation of the tax swap into a single excise tax that would be collect no more than the existing tax framework with the cultivation tax and excise tax separately. The legislation would result in an effective full suspension of the cultivation tax on the industry until 2025 and a partial suspension for an additional year after that until 2026. However, this bill is already being attacked by not, but not, not just by the cannabis industry, but by the service providers for low income and at risk use. Then they say they say they oppose any cuts because their programs rely heavily on money collected from Proposition 64. We've had a, heard a lot about the impact of, on the cannabis industry, but have heard little to no impact to those who benefit from those taxes. Mary Ignitus, the statewide organizer for Parent Voices California, which advocates for affordable child care, said at a news conference on Wednesday. And Mariana Hernandez, a prevention manager at Community Coalition, an advocacy and social justice group based in South Los Angeles, said cutting services would be an assault to those disproportionately affected by the war on drugs. South L.A. was once overcriminalized for cannabis use, sale and possession, she said. Now, uh, to, to now strip the community of the resources coming from the tax revenue is quite frankly an assault to South L.A. black and brown residents, which many of which still have family members incarcerated to this day due to marijuana related charges. In the state budget for fiscal year 2021-2022, nearly $400 million in revenue from California's cannabis taxes will go to child care and prevention services for thousands of children in poverty. That includes more than $279 million allocated to the Department of Social Services for child care and nearly $81 million for youth prevention programs supported through the Department of Health and Care Services. Combined, more than 200 21,000 low-income children across the state benefit from child care services programs, but as many as 2.3 million could be eligible, Ignitus said. That's why these Prop 64 dollars are so crucial, she said. Any cuts to cannabis taxes will result in cuts to child care for mostly children of color living in poverty who need that access now more than ever. More reform bills are likely to be introduced in the coming year that could threaten services to communities hit hardest by mass incarceration and poverty, said Jim Kenny, executive director for the advocacy organization Youth Forward. Not only does cannabis tax revenue play a crucial role in funding child care, but it's also a primary funding source for services for the formerly incarcerated youth prevention services, job training and other critical support systems in communities of color that have been impacted by the war on drugs, Keedy said. It it. It downturns, it downturns years. Kids living in poverty, kids of color, those programs get cut, he added. That's why this revenue stream is so crucial now. Well, I'm going to tell you what, California, eliminating the cultivation tax and then just reintroducing it in a couple years later, a few years later, 
as an additional uh, increase on the excise tax is just stupid. Okay, you need to eliminate the cultivation tax completely. And this is Jason Beck reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. I'm with you on that, Jason. I mean, why aren't we just cutting these damn taxes completely? Apparently, they're willing to do so temporarily. And I hate how they try to prop up people of color, quote unquote, as the reason why we need these taxes when it's really a redistribution of our wealth. Let just let the people just keep the damn money in their own pockets. Let these organizations be able to make direct contributions to those that need it, that want it, and everybody's happy. But first things first, let's get government out of the damn picture. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm totally with you guys on this. But I, I think, too, that, you know, everything happens on a gradient in Sacramento. So just getting this immediate relief is super important. And we've got three years to fix the exercise, and we can do it. So I just want to, I just want to, I'm so thankful that anything happened because there's an extinction event going on on, on small craft farms in NorCal. So we needed something. So this is something, let's keep working, let's keep fixing it. And injecting people of color and kids into this is kind of bullshit because we can't have this, you know, our taxes on this being like the golden goose and they're just pumping us so hard. So I'm glad to see something. Yeah, and these are the same people, forget not, that told us all to vote against this. I mean, these were all the save the children, save the children people. I, I, right back. If you listen to their tax calls, I've been listening in on their tax calls, and it's it's alarmist, the things that they um, allege that the industry is doing. It, 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 yeah, do you mind if I chime Go in? Go ahead. This is the big Elliot, we've got Elliot, we're at time, but we've got Elliot Lewis and Sean Kierman that we want to get to. This is the biggest crock of fucking shit that I've ever heard in my life. It needs to be drastically reformed. Market share is not going to change. Cutting cultivation checks is not going to change. They're going through the motions. They're being run by the SEIU. This is a coordinated media hit. Anybody that could read through the tea leaves, the SEIU has that earmark. They've now sent out their people in the most disgusting display of fake aggressive liberalism to put kids of color out as if that has anything to do with cannabis tax. SEIU is not a fucking stakeholder. Get the fuck out. But they control those little liberal bitches up in Sacramento and the fake-ass progressives, so they kowtow to the SEIU because they have an earmark on our tax money. But what they forget to mention is there's a $31 billion surplus. Get it somewhere else. And more importantly, they're not a stakeholder. They have the money. There's a lot of other industries that they can tax, whether it be, you know, oil or or alcohol, or you name it, and they're acting like if they can't tax our industry, oh, the children. And when you see multiple stories come from within an hour of each other, that's when you know you're about to get fucked by Sacramento, the sandpaper condom. And let me say this, the only solution to this problem is a 2024 initiative. That's it. You're never going to fucking help us. Uh, Elliot, can we get a weed for the people? Weed for the people. Hey, this is Sean. I would just like to say that... uh, I don't see Eric's point at all that this is not going to help the small farmer. Shifting taxes is a disaster. It's not going to even get passed. And because the SEIU and many other very powerful groups are going to stand against it. And like Elliot said, um, we've been working on the initiative in 2024. Sacramento is scared finally that it is so dysfunctional that we have a chance. And I love that they try to uh, not institute the increase in excise until 2025. A year after the vote. So uh, I hope people see through this and it is a economic uh, charade and it is not going to help the small farmers. Uh, the problem is Prop 64, not just the cultivation tax. It is dysfunctional and 
Unfortunately, Elliot, the SEIU is a stakeholder in Sacramento, and we've got to figure out a way to disintermediate them. And to your point, we're going to bring it straight to the voters. Straight. 100%, Sean. 100 fucking percent. This bill is so a fucking spicy. sham and needs to go back to the trash can that he came from. All right. Well, thank you so much for that headline, Jason. Thank you, Elliot and Sean, for weighing in. Super, super interesting. And, um, man, I, those are some good pros that I've never heard before. Um, and up next, we have Ms. Menika Mahajan. Menika's a pot-smoking PhD, political economist, and the founder of Mahajan Consultant, Consulting. What do you have for us today? Thank you, Nicole. Good morning, everybody. Uh, so I'm also talking about taxes and how they're working out. Uh, my story today is from MJ Biz Daily, and the headline reads, Plunging Cannabis Prices Add Fuel to Efforts to Lower Tax Rate for Canadian Producers. So here's another case study for our research file. And on the cover of that file folder, we have written in Sharpie, Cannabis Taxes, how's that working out for you? So here's what happens when you have falling prices combined with high tax rates. Based on data from investment bank Jeffrey's Group and data analytics firm Headset, the average selling price per gram of cannabis in Canada fell 26% over the past 13 months. Canada charges one Canadian dollar per gram or 10% of the value of the gram, whichever is greater on dried cannabis flour for a little background there. The Canadian Chamber of Commerce and the chambers in British Columbia and Ontario are calling for a reassessment of Canada's cannabis tax levy. As in California, as we just heard um, from correspondent Jason Beck and our wonderful guests, the tax structure in Canada is counterproductive to the goal of bringing more operators into the licensed market while curbing the underground market. The Ontario Chamber of Commerce's Cannabis Policy Council is calling for, quote, evidence-based, common-sense policy reforms that champion the economic growth of the cannabis sector while safeguarding public safety. Three years into legalization, it's prudent for government decision-makers to look at the policy environment with an aim toward evolving and modernizing regulations where appropriate. I think they should also send this letter to Sacramento. The VP of Policy is also calling for a single standard stamp for all Canadian jurisdictions. And according to a report by the BC Chamber, the current excise system keeps the black market alive. Costs trickle down to the consumer as well as pose business viability risks to producers. The BC Chamber also made 12 other policy recommendations, and I'm just going to highlight three of those for you. One is to create an economic mandate for cannabis at a ministerial level in the province. Two is to introduce retail changes to improve regulated consumer access to cannabis, and third is to work with the federal government to create a single excise tax stamp. The price declines in 2021 were biggest in concentrates and vape pens at 35% decline, capsules dropped by 20%, pre-rolls dropped by 19%, and flour dropped by 16%. This is in Canada again. Dan Sutton, who's spearheading a tax reform campaign and the public face for the Stand for Craft campaign, said, outside of legalization, average wholesale price of cannabis was uh, eight Canadian dollars per gram. And most of us built our financial models, not assuming that that would persist, but I don't think anyone could have predicted at the outset that today it would be below five Canadian dollars per gram wholesale. The Stanford Craft campaign seeks an end to flat minimum per gram tax. And the organization has developed its own proposal for tax reform to apply a percentage-based excise tax based on different tax tiers for microcultivators, craft scale, standard growers, small to medium cultivation enterprises, and large cultivators. 
So uh, as I was reading this, I was just thinking about California. It's sort of a you know different set of ingredients, but the same same type of outcome here. And I'd love to hear if we have anyone from the Canadian market uh, in the audience. This is Menika Mahajan reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. The Canadian market only sells booth weed, so no wonder their prices are so low. I'm just sad Christopher Smith's not on the stage today to talk about his feelings on Canada. I like that. <laughs> I don't. I do too. They won't let me in. I feel like I don't like them because I'm not welcome at their party. It's like high school all over again. <laughs> <laughs> you just got to hop on the trucker convoy and I'm sure they'll let you in, Nicole. All right. Okay. <laughs> um, we're, we're, past the, we're past the half hour point, so we're going to go ahead and relight the room. You are tuned in to the State of Cannabis News Hour, your daily dose. The thoughts and opinions expressed in the State of Cannabis News Hour are those of the individual speakers, not those of any other speaker in State of Cannabis or its members. The statements made in the State of Cannabis News Hour do not constitute legal or accounting advice, and State of Cannabis and its speakers make no representation regarding the legal status of any substance in any country, area, or territory, or any other authorities. The views expressed in this room do not establish any fiduciary relationships. The sponsorship of the State of Cannabis News Hour do not imply or constitute any endorsement by the State of Cannabis or the expressions of any of the opinions whatsoever on the part of the State of Cannabis or any of its speakers. Viewer discretion advised. If you missed the beginning of the show, make sure to catch the replay or find us a few hours after the show anywhere you get your podcasts or on our YouTube channel. And if you like the content, please subscribe and leave us a killer review. A family raised with roots in Long Beach, a single mother building generational wealth, the first of its kind, changing lives and enhancing highs, Medicaid high luxury, meet Can Express. High luxury cannabis flower and concentrates available now at your local Catalyst dispensaries. All right, I'm going to keep smoking the news with my story. Most people can agree on two things the war on drugs is a failure, and the mainstream media is broken. My story today is an intersection of both of those things. It comes from Voltface, and the headline is The Media's War on Cannabis, written by Ruby DJ. She says, quote, what we're fed by our mainstream media is more often than not seriously skewed reports, propaganda, and clickbait. It's all about what brings in the money, entertainment, voyeurism, advertising, rarely unbiased, informative, balanced news at all. The press's role in the near-century-long war on cannabis is a glaring example of how media narratives can strongly influence public opinion and support. In the face of changing attitudes towards cannabis, our mass media continues to use stigmatized language, moral panic, institutionalized racism, and lies to underpin an enormously successful anti-cannabis propaganda effort. As a mainstream journalist, she has made an effort to focus on positive cannabis reporting, but more often than not is met with the following comments. Quote, there's not enough science to support medical use of cannabis slash CBD, unquote. Quote, cannabis stories don't drive traffic, unquote. Quote, cannabis stories don't resonate with our readers, unquote. She says, pitch an article about a huge cannabis bust or the old favorite hikes in schizophrenia as a result of cannabis use, and they're snapped up. 
Just take a look at uh, the Google News Feed for evidence. Fear sells, prohibition sells. I imagine it pays pretty well, too. That's one of the things that drives us here at the State of Cannabis News Hour. We've designed our format to be a trusted source for cannabis news. We know that the truth is not possible without the active pursuit of a diversity of voices, especially those at most risk of being left out. This is a really great article. It's pretty long. I encourage everyone to read it and just be aware of uh, how the media is handling cannabis when you read a story. Yeah, just, you know, somebody who tried to write their first cannabis story in 1997, I felt all that stuff. And I think more than anything, it's not even animosity. It's just, it's ignorance. People just don't know. And they hurt. It's all the reefer madness that everybody else has grown up with. And a lot of these people... In the, in the media, they just don't understand. As a journalist, I've encountered all this stuff, and it's just we have to educate at every point we can. And it's like letters to the editor or, you know, when you comment on an article with some information, help these folks along. They mean well, and remember, they're run by corporations, right? These are corporate entities, so um, they react to public pressure. And they just, need, they just need us to help them educate. And those of us who are journalists, we try to educate our brethren and sisters to also get on the program. You know, um, it just really sucks. You know, this, this is just what America is today. And, you know, a lot of people, I know people have said it like many times before, Barack Obama is the, par- is the president that America wants. But, uh, uh, but Donald Trump truly reflects who America is. And um, we were running through our clicks at the end of the year after running um, um, uh, uh, email campaigns for over a year now. And People click on that shit. People love that shit. So if, if you guys really want to continue hearing stories that matter um, about the people, about coming together, community, fucking pay for that shit and, and support these initiatives, support these people, support independent journalists, like 100%. Or This is all we're going to have. This is idiocracy, and we have become a self-fulfilling prophecy. Support the Isn't State the of Cannabis question. News Hour. Go to the podcast, please, and s- subscribe and leave a review. Go ahead, Nicholas. I was going to say, doesn't the First Amendment protect freedom of press? What about that part? Most press is not actually press, Nicholas. It's opinion-based. Fear sells. And to the mainstream media, we say... You are fake news. Oh, yeah. yeah. Real journalism ain't opinion, Jason. Real journalism is not opinion. Exactly. That's how well, it works. Exactly. You, you know, it, it was something, something real inconvenient, real quick here. Something real inconvenient. Um, and Sarah, Sarah Palin, she's about to lose, she's about to lose this fucking uh, court case herself. She had the chance to save the press and to save non-fake news um, um, with this lawsuit against the New York Times. And she's about to just blow it. Uh, but instead, we're going to continue having the same shit uh, that we have going on here. And uh, the, big, uh, the biggest loser in all of this was going to be Fox News. Uh, but instead, we're going to continue to have the pumped out bullshit mainstream trash that we've been uh, uh, flooded with over the last 10 years or so. Well, Rico, I think the, big, the biggest loser will actually be CNN. But at the same time, too, I think in Sarah Palin's case, this is not going to be the first time that she's blown something. <laughs> Facts. Oh, my God. <laughs> so spicy. <laughs> We've got Michelle up from the audience. Michelle, did you want to weigh in? Yeah, just about media in general. I mean, you watch CNN to get one side and you get you watch Fox to see the other. There really isn't any more mainstream real news anymore. Everything is op-ed and it's, 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 it's disgusting. 
I watch local news and try to avoid national news days. Local news is controlled by the national news because they're all the same channels. Uh, but it's different, it's though. Different. I, w- I was watching the local news uh, for the first time in over a decade. And first of all, I was surprised that those anchors were still alive. Uh, but second of all, I was like, whoa, there's so much news. Look at all this news. When I was a, a cable news junkie. And you just hear the same stories day after day, week after week, month after month, whatever they're pushing. I have been cable news free for a, over a year. Mockingbird Yay. Media, I believe. Let's keep so. smoking the news. All right. Up next, she's the founder of Panoptic Strategies, a staunch supporter of safe banking, and a self-described feisty redheaded conservative with Mayflower roots. Never too scared to spar with cannabis-loving libs across the aisle. Coming to the stage next, found is Gretchen Gailey. What you got for us today, Gretchen? Good afternoon, Rico. Uh, My headline today is coming from Marijuana Moment, and it's a happier tax story. Uh, The headline is D.C. Mayor Signs Bill to Let Older Patients Get Medical Marijuana Without Doctors and Create a 420 Cannabis Tax Holiday. The mayor of Washington, D.C. has signed a bill into law that will expand access to the district's medical marijuana program in a series of ways. Now, senior citizens will be able to self-certify their own eligibility for cannabis without having to get a recommendation from a doctor. The law also further extends the registration renewal deadline for patients and creates a week-long medical marijuana tax relief holiday that coincides with the unofficial cannabis event known as 420. Mary Muriel Bowser signed the bill two weeks after the D.C. Council voted unanimously in favor of the proposal, which was sponsored by Chairman Phil Mendelson. The emergency legislation is meant to ease logistical burdens for patients in the jurisdiction and incentivize people to obtain cannabis from licensed dispensaries rather than buy their products from gray market vendors who have taken advantage of a workaround related to the district's policy allowing for marijuana gifting between adults. The Medical Marijuana Patient Access Extension Emergency Amendment Act of 2022 is designed to help address rising cannabis costs at licensed dispensaries and the continuing threat posed by illicit cannabis storefronts and delivery services. With respect to senior citizens over 65, the law makes it so those individuals will no longer have to go through the hoops of obtaining recommendations and renewals from physicians to continue to access cannabis products based on self-certification for medical needs until September 30th. The Alcoholic Beverage Regulation Administration discussed the legislation in a press release on Tuesday and also announced that it will be launching a senior week from February 22nd to the 25th, I don't know how that's a week, but whatever, uh, to help assist seniors in the self-certification process. Senior Week will provide qualifying patients 65 years of age and older with the option to obtain a two-year registration card at no cost prior to the start of the medical cannabis tax holiday on April 15th. We appreciate the steps taken by the D.C. Council to ease the burdens for qualifying patients to access medical cannabis, a result of this emergency legislation. They will also generally expand on prior emergency legislation that the council approved at the height of the coronavirus pandemic to extend registration eligibility for the medical cannabis program. Patients under 65 with registrations will continue to be validated through at least September 30th. Finally, the measure creates an incentive to keep people out of gray and illicit markets by creating a 420 medical cannabis tax holiday week where medical cannabis patients would not pay the 6% sales tax for the period of Friday, April 15, 2022, through Sunday, April 24, 2022. Um, I like that D.C. is moving forward. They're doing what they can uh, in spite of what Congress hands them down and holds back uh, this market. 
I if they ever get past their bullshit, I see DC to be a very good cannabis market. The scratching for state of cannabis news out. Uh, hey everyone, I, I just wanted to add that I think it's it's a great idea, but I think what make this legislation more better <laughs> would be to put out some PSAs, public service announcements, uh, cautioning seniors about falls. Uh, TAC can make your blood pressure drop and. Uh, seniors already have decreased muscle mass and are tend, tend to fall. Uh, so you want to let them know about that. And also, if they're on a bunch of pharmaceuticals, the PSA should encourage them to consult with a health care provider regarding drug herb, possible drug herb interactions. I think this is a, it's actually a really, really good idea. But I'm also to you, uh, Gretchen. How about getting D.C. a little bit of that statehood? Oh, oh that'll never happen. D.C. is not a state. Let's just not get started on this. We've got a short time. Hi as a so kite, Rico. Hi as a kite. Yeah, yeah, we all are. We all are, Gretchen. Um, and up next, we have Laura DeCaro. Laura is a fighter for love is love, co-founder of the International Cannabis Bar Association and the current chair of the Bar Association of San, of Can- San Francisco Cannabis Law Section. What do you have for us today, Laura? Well, hello, everyone. Good day, good day, good day. Um, I have a follow-up to a story we started on last week, and I believe Sean's in the audience and may want to come up. Um, Sean Kelly Rye has, uh, is a lobbyist down in San Jose and may have some thoughts on this one. Um, the story is published today. The one I'm looking at is in Cron 4 News. You may have heard us report last week that the San Jose Planning Commission recommended that the city open up more retail facilities. Well, at Tuesday's city council meeting, those city leaders voted to approve those recommendations to change the zoning laws and allow for a total of 37 cannabis dispensaries up from the current number of 16 in additional commercial locations throughout the city. Um, In in 2014, San Jose's rules uh, required... Um, their medical cannabis participants to grow uh, their own products, which led to locating retail and industrial-only areas, but that was not very well accessible to the public, and this move is aimed at uh, increasing accessibility. The article that is uh, pinned at the top doesn't really mention it, but the new rules also change some of the social equity rules, including reserving up to five Uh, of 10 new licenses for social equity applicants and keeping all except for social equity applicants out of District 7, which is in the heart of town. Um, There's been quite a bit of debate around license limits and competition and opening up to additional stores. So I'm just wondering what all y'all think about San Jose doubling, more than doubling, their retail licenses. I actually think that um, Man Jose should more than double (laughs) the uh, amount of women women (laughs) (laughs) no but uh (laughs) rico you're gonna get yourself in so much trouble (laughs) just saying uh uh, do they really need a lot more dispensaries there what do you say sean yeah hey this is sean uh the, the data proves that we do right The, the market in 2016 in san jose was about 90 million dollars and the market now, based on the excise tax that San Jose has, is about $175 million. So you have almost double the market size with the same number of dispensaries. This was actually supposed to happen in 2019, but then the pandemic hit, and uh, here we are now, and they're finally doing it. Uh, there's actually going to be 10 equity licenses, uh, five that are retail storefront and five that are going to be delivery only. And uh, so they're, they're expanding that also. 
That makes more sense because the numbers weren't quite adding up in the stories that I was reading. So that makes more sense. Thank you. Sean, 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 has anyone ever gone to City Hall to say, hey, we need more dispensaries in our community because I don't think there's enough access? No, but I'll tell you this. At the council hearing and at the uh, at the council hearing in a city of a million people, not a single person said this was a bad idea. So no public comment happened. We came immediately after billboards and there was like two hours of public testimony about how we hate billboards. Nobody stuck around to talk about how they hated cannabis. And so the city's just looking at this saying, hey, we, we got to get it out of the industrial. It's impacted the industrial areas because retail is not designed for industrial. And let's get it over to retail shopping centers where there's some vacancy rates and we can kind of drive up uh, traffic toward retail shopping centers. So the city's finally, you know, six years after the fact, looking at this and saying, hey, maybe we should follow Union City, Redwood City, um, just about every other city in the state and start going to retail commercial. But it's market size. And, you know, frankly, it's also tax. The city wants more taxes, and they figure if they have more dispensaries, they'll give more access um, and have more dispensary and have more taxes. It's all about the taxes. All these articles about tax. Well, the, the other comment that one of the council members made that made the motion was, um, "We're not doing a whole lot for enforcement. So if we're ever going to get ahead of the illegal market, it's we got to have more retail locations. And maybe this will put a small dent in getting back to that three thousand number of, of dispensaries, retail outlets we had." under Prop 215, because uh, we're only somewhere around 900 statewide. So, you know, honestly, we need to triple that number if we're going to ever get over this glut of, of manufacturing and cultivation that's happening. Up next, he is a fifth-generation Californio, an award-winning journalist and with a multicultural background, a writer, brand consultant, event promoter, content ninja, and freedom-fighting farmer's friend. You know who it is up next? The international man of truth-telling himself, Eric Hislereta. Hey, Rico. Thank you for that lit interview uh, intro. And hey, everybody. Great to be here today. My headline is from Benzinga, and it's Jade Nectar soon to release THCV rich cannabis seeds free to public via California dispensaries. So I'm sure most of you have heard and maybe even experienced the buzz about the THCV cannabinoid. Early research has shown uh, it has the potential to, to be used as a neuroprotectant, appetite suppressant, and to regulate metabolism, making it clinically useful for weight loss and management of obesity and type 2 diabetes. It also appears to mitigate the high associated with THC similar to CBD. And now we have word that Jade Nectar, a Santa Cruz-based legacy wellness company, is about to do a release of THC-dominant seeds, free to the public in their Free the V program, which will start in March in collaboration with California Cannabis Retail Shop. Quoting here, amid growing interest in THCV for both wellness and recreational use, THCV-rich cannabis genetics are nearly impossible to access due to proprietary claims. Jade Nectar's Cannabis Public Domain Project proposes an alternative model wherein all cannabis compounds exist in the public domain, accessible to all who wish to explore them. The universe created the cannabis plant and all of its compounds so they belong to us all, said Jeff Nordahl, founder of Jade Nectar. Free the V cannabis seeds currently produce between 6 to 10% THCV in the finished and dried cannabis flowers. Free the V was bred by Jade Nectar in a multi-year utilized a number of land-raised cannabis varieties sourced from around the world. Our goal was to selectively breed until we reached 5% or higher THCV in the majority of seeds, 
and then set the THCV free for the public to explore. It's ready, Nordahl continued. Um, I'm going to add that I found in the footer of their press release, Jade Nectar holds multiple U.S. patents for infusing raw acidic cannabinoids into food oil and for processing fresh whole plant cannabis material into frozen purees, juice, and other whole plant food products. So they're, <laughs> they do have a propensity to patent stuff. So I see a couple things here, an exercise in branding and publicity, and also maybe a genuine desire to keep genetics in the public domain, but it also raises the questions about what happens when anyone, including big MSOs, are handed these elusive genetics. So to comment on this, um, I'd like to actually invite up a second generation triangle cultivator, uh, Joseph Haggard of Emerald Spirit Botanicals. Uh, they actually won an Emerald Cup in 2020 for their Pink Boost Goddess strain, which is a one-to-one THCV, THC cultivar. Um, Joseph, if you're up, man, I'd love to have you talk about what this means for a small craft operation for, uh, such as you guys have. Hey, Eric. Thanks for the opportunity to share, and thank you, everyone, for putting this event on. Um, you know, I think I can see some positives and some concerns um, from this coming out. I think a positive is, like, absolutely this THCV medicine is powerful, and there are a lot of people that will benefit from it and a lot of people that will be given the opportunity to grow it for themselves on a home scale. And I think that's really, when it comes to true medicine, growing it yourself is how you create true medicine, not buying it from a corporate entity that's seeking profit off of medicinal compounds. Um, I think one of the concerns is, like you mentioned, you know, if it gets into... Um, the public domain and, and this just becomes easily accessible by anyone, um, I'm not sure how much that prevents a large company like an MSO or, or profit-seeking entity to simply take those THCB seeds um, and then breed with them a season or two and patent that work. Um, you know, in our work, um, kind of researching patents, my understanding is that you can put a um, a limit. Um, if you wrap it up real quick, um, we have very limited time for our headlines. We cut the show at exactly uh, one hour. So um, any last couple seconds, and then we're going to go and hop to our next correspondent. Okay, sorry about that. Um, I think one thing worth considering is that if, if a patent is put on THCV, you can add a uh, line in the patent that allows small-scale cultivators to grow that THCV without any risk to um, any lawsuits as long as it's not for production or sale. And I think that's an interesting uh, angle to consider when protecting genetics. Awesome. Thank you so much for your insight on that and coming up. And Eric, thank you for that headline. Up next, we have Brandon Dorsky, cannabis's favorite bearded lawyer, stuck somewhere between the vibes and the judicial system. A tightrope walk that he walks quite well. What do you have for us today, Brandon? Thanks for having me today. My headline comes from the SFist.com. It's San Francisco cannabis dispensary smoking lounges. Get the green light to start blazing up again. That's right, San Francisco's Department of Public Health gave the green light to blaze up on Tuesday and yesterday. Sparks were flying and smoke was in the air. The restriction on cannabis smoking at licensed lounges was lifted, just like the state's indoor mask requirements. But, side note, Los Angeles still has some indoor mask mandates. But in the Bay Area, you can consume without a mask on. 
All of the permitted cannabis lounges were notified of the restrictions removal, and lounge owners rejoiced, with Market Street's Mo Greens posting on their site, quote, the lounge will be reopening for smoking, dabbing, and vaping. Come on down and hang like it was 2019. Five of the dispensaries had actually reopened temporarily over the summer before the Delta variant wave forced another round of shuttering doors. Attendees who come must still show proof of vaccination or a lab-verified negative test to enter. Unfortunately, over-the-counter at-home COVID tests will not be enough for you to gain entry into San Francisco's smoking lounges. And that's about all that article had to report. So this is Brandon Dorsky reporting for the State of Cannabis News. Let's jump right over to uh, Nicholas. So the governor. Yeah. All right, all right. Top of the morning to you, State of Cannabis crew. My article from the Rocky Mountain Collegian talks about doctors' frustration with new medical cannabis regulations. Back to Colorado. The Colorado Board of Health convened for a regular meeting on Wednesday to certify changes to the state's official policies on medical cannabis, among other agenda items. These changes were created by House Bill 2113-17, signed into law by Governor Jared Polis in June of last year. The rule changes, which were unanimously approved by the board, require physicians who recommend medical cannabis to patients over 21 to make a few adjustments to how they do things. Doctor must now review the patient's full medical history to verify their need for cannabis and recommend specific dosage, products, and directions for use. Since Colorado legalized medical cannabis in 2000, physicians could write with a recommendation after diagnosing a patient with at least one of the maladies on a list that includes cancer, chronic pain, HIV, AIDS, PTSD. For years, physicians did just that. They diagnosed people with one of these various issues and gave them a certificate that allowed them to purchase medical cannabis from specific dispensaries. Now, things are different. The doctor quoted here says, without medical records, if a patient comes in with amputation, I can't diagnose phantom pain. If a patient comes in with a traumatic facial injury, I can't diagnose it. You're telling me that I have to have medical records when a patient's diagnosis is obvious. Uh, there is a looming fear that the new form of recommendation, recommendation, dosage, product, and THC potency constitutes a prescription rather than a recommendation. Prescribing any Schedule One controlled substance, which are drugs defined by the federal government as having no current um, accepted medical use, including cannabis, could put doctors in violation of the DEA requirements. The DEA has yet to take any action against physicians who have recommended cannabis. With new roadblocks between eligible patients and their medical cannabis, some speculate that the state is cynically pushing patients towards the recreational market due to the higher tax rate. Gubernatorial candidate Nicholas Wildstar, a.k.a. the governor, reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. Speak now or forever. Hold your peace. I'm out. Thank, thank you, Governor. That was a great show. If you missed any of it, make sure to catch the replay or find us a few hours after the show anywhere you get your podcasts or on our YouTube channel. And if you like the content, please subscribe and leave a review. My uh, profile picture is the QR code to find the latest episode. A big thank you to all of the correspondents that comb through all the headlines each day to bring us just what we need to know. A big thank you to Nicole and Rico for co-producing the show and to 
our pinup girl, Liz Rogan. Thank you, audience, for being our eyes and ears when there's news in your city, county, state, or country. Your addition to our show makes the State of Cannabis News Hour news you can trust. Descheduler bust. You've been tuned in to the State of Cannabis News Hour, where we collectively move policy forward in an inclusive and sustainable way. Start your morning on a high note and join us every weekday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time for the State of Cannabis News Hour, your daily dose. So spicy. Deschedule the bus. Pass safe banking. <laughs> Say goodbye, Rico. Goodbye, Rico. <laughs>